Well, hey, church family, it's great to be back uh, with you. I've been out of the pulpit for a little bit, um, and y'all have been in good hands, but I'm, I'm very excited to, to be back this morning to continue through the book of Acts. And so this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 7, and we're going to talk about the seed of the church, the seed of the church. So if you do have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 7, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Um, and if you don't have one at home, you're welcome to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. So as we've been looking through the book of Acts, we have seen uh, the miraculous work that we just heard about this morning, just now. We've seen how wherever the, that the, the God was at work through the apostles and through these, through these early proclaimers of the gospel. And in particularly, we've been talking recently about one of the seven whom the apostles chose, a special leader in the early church named Stephen. Um, he was full of the spirit and wisdom, and we saw how he wasn't just a faithful servant within the church, but he was a faithful proclaimer of the gospel outside of the church. And, uh, and in fact, that led to his arrest and trial before the Sanhedrin. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, we went through uh, Stephen's uh, message there to the Sanhedrin where, where, where he gave them an Old Testament lesson. All right, and, and, and basically the point, the main point of his message to them was that they, just like their forefathers, continuously rejected God and his appointed leaders, uh, and they put their hope and trust in, in, in the place of Israel or the land or the temple rather than simply obeying God, obeying God in faith and obedience. Now, of course, their response to Stephen is, is pretty predictable uh, because they... Uh, become furious in rage, and then Stephen, as we'll see today, becomes the first Christian martyr. But the message today is entitled, The Seed of the Church, and that's because a, a famous a church father named Tertullian once said uh, that the blood of the martyrs is seed, uh, the seed of the church. That is, that the more Christians are struck down, the more the church grows. And we see that right here in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. If you're able and willing, let me invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's words. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. It says, Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments, laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were, scattered all, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So 
there was much joy in that city. The word of God. You may be seated. All right, so we're going to look at this passage this morning under three headings. Number one, a spirit-filled witness. Number two, a suffering witness. And number three, a spreading witness. So a spirit-filled witness, a suffering witness, and a spreading witness. First, what we see here is a spirit-filled witness. So Stephen began his speech, uh, and if you remember way back in chapter 6, verse 15, it says that, that when Stephen rose to make his defense, he's been arrested for proclaiming Christ. As Stephen rose to make his defense before the Sanhedrin, it says that his face was like the face of an angel. All right, and we said at that time that that was clearly a divine sign from heaven, God making him appear that way, so that they knew, they would know that what he's about to say is from God, okay? And he rendered to them in his message the same divine rebuke that God had given to the Jewish forefathers through the prophets of old. In verse 51, he says, uh, Stephen told them, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So they are resisting the Holy Spirit because they refuse to listen to the truth about Jesus Christ. And then in verse 55 there, uh, which we just read, it says there that, that, that Stephen is once again full of the Holy Spirit. So the, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, they're opposing the Holy Spirit. They, they resist the Holy Spirit. And Peter now is speaking to them. I mean, Stephen now is speaking to them once again in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And at those words, they are enraged. They are enraged. It literally means that their hearts, it, says, it literally says their hearts were torn in two. That is, torn in two with anger, all right, at what he's saying, right? Uh, it makes me think of, of, of Hulk Hogan, right? And he would just go just like rip his shirt like that, like the Hulk, right? That, that's literally like how angry they are at Stephen, okay? Uh, because this wasn't a staged wrestling match, all right? It was, it was pure rage and hatred because, because get, I mean, and you can imagine, right? They have arrested Stephen for blasphemy, right? So in their minds, He's the one that is condemned before God, and Stephen has stood there and said that it, was, it is really them who are condemned before God because it is they, who, not he, who are resisting the Holy Spirit because they've rejected God's Christ, God's Messiah. And so they go into a fit of rage. It's like middle schoolers, right? They just they shut their ears, right? They don't even want to listen. Any, they can't even bear to listen anymore. They don't even want to hear anymore what Stephen has to say. But in that moment, Stephen is perfectly serene. It's amazing, right? In the fullness of the Holy Spirit, he is granted a vision into the throne room of heaven. And he is looking up, and as he is engulfed in the heavenly realm, right? He's in the middle of the Sanhedrin, but in his mind, what he can see, he's in heaven. And he is narrating what is going on in heaven at that very moment to the people. You see, he can see something they can't see. He, he sees something that everyone else in the room can't see. And so he's narrating to them in this very moment when they're in this fit of rage, he is narrating to them what is happening. And what does he see? He sees the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, standing at the right hand of the Father. All right? And it's not difficult to see the parallels here that I think are intentional with Stephen's arrest and martyrdom, with Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, okay? And what's interesting here is, is, is a lot of this circles around a famous a prophecy 
from the book of Daniel. Uh, the, 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 uh, in Daniel chapter 7, way back, uh, way back before Stephen and, 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 and even Jesus are born at this point, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel was granted a vision like Stephen was into the heavenly throne room. And in Daniel 7, 13, this is what Daniel saw. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him, that is to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this is Daniel's vision, and he sees a vision like Stephen did of this image of a son of man, of somebody approaching God on a cloud, if you will, and to this special individual, this son of man is given authority over all nations and an everlasting kingdom, right? Daniel has this vision of God's great king. He describes him as the son of man. Well, you'll remember that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, Jesus' favorite self-reference for himself was son of man. It's the most common thing he called himself was the Son of Man. It was a bold yet subtle nod to Jesus' self-understanding that he was the one Daniel saw in his vision that approached the throne room on a cloud and to him is given authority, as Jesus said, uh, all, all authority in heaven and on earth. And so what's interesting there is that uh, comparing Jesus's, the end of Jesus' life with the end of Stephen's life, Mark in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus is before the same group of men, right? This is the same Sanhedrin, more or less, that crucified Jesus. And now Stephen is standing before the same group of men. And Jesus, in Mark 14, verse 61, it says this. It says, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? blessed? And Jesus said to him, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What is that? That's a reference to Daniel chapter 7 where Jesus is saying, I'm the one, and I am the Christ, I am the Son of the Blessed One, I am He who Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7, and you will see me at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so, and so uh, to their... Uh, so the same words, and, and, and by the way, if you remember in Jesus' uh, account, right, when Jesus says these words, when Jesus cites Daniel chapter 7 and, and affirms to them that he is in fact the Son of God, that's when they lose their minds and, and gnash their teeth and begin to beat him and spit, and spit on him and all that stuff and, begin, and, and start the process of having him crucified, right? And what's interesting is that, and so what did Jesus say? You will... You will you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and seated at the right hand of power. And so notice, it is now Stephen who is in the presence of the Sanhedrin. And what, is, what does he say? He says the same exact words. He, see, he sees what? He looks up in heaven and sees the Son of Man at the right hand of God. And in, the same, and in the same exact thing that Jesus said, and they lost their minds, Stephen says it to them, and they lose their minds at him and begin gnashing their teeth at him and uh, begin to stone him. And so... And so what's remarkable about this is that at the very moment uh, of, of Stephen's death, right, he sees what he's been proclaiming. That's amazing, isn't it? He has been proclaiming to them what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
the, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And that the moment of his death, what does he see? He sees the very thing he's been proclaiming. He sees the Savior that he's been preaching. And there he is. And he's standing right where he told him he was. Right where he was telling everyone else he was. He gets to see that with his own eyes. There he is at the right hand of God. Standing there, bearing witness to his own death. And that, and that I, I do think that, that is, there, there is, that, that's remarkable, Right? Lots of people from time to time have asked this question about what Jesus standing means because most of the time when it refers to something like that, it refers to the Lord sitting at the right hand of God. But in, in Stephen's vision, it says the Lord is standing at the right hand of God. And people have wondered, is there any significance to that? And, and there may be. Um, it's possible that Jesus standing is an indication that Jesus is bearing witness to Stephen before God, even as Stephen is bearing witness to Jesus before men. And in fact, Jesus said that he would do this in Luke chapter 12, verse 8. It says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. So just imagine that, right? Stephen is bearing witness before Jesus. Literally at this point, the whole world is against him. He's about to be killed for his testimony in Christ. But you know what? It doesn't matter because he's bearing witness before Jesus, uh, for Jesus before men. But at that moment, he gets to see Jesus look, look, bearing witness to him before the Father. That one's mine. Look at him go. Look at him go for me. Look at him. Tell them about me unashamed. He's bearing witness. What's the point? The point is you'll never regret standing up for Jesus. You'll never regret standing up for Jesus because when you stand up for Jesus, Jesus is standing up for you in the throne room of heaven. So in this heavenly vision, when he tells them this heavenly vision, they, they, they lose it and they start screaming and they cover their ears. And, and, and um, and again, there's this, there's this mirror picture that's being painted, I believe, between Stephen and Jesus. It says there, some of Jesus' last words on the cross was he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Stephen, this time, uh, says that he is committing his spirit into the hands of Jesus. So that's interesting, right? Jesus committed his, hands, his spirit into the Father's hands, and now Stephen is committing his spirit into Jesus' hands at the moment of his death. Uh, and just like Jesus, in the face of an unjust trial and, and his own murder, just like Jesus did, he still has compassion on his accusers. Just as Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, Stephen prays for the, them as they are stoning him, saying, Father, do not hold the sin against him. And with those words, he falls asleep, it says. Now, you know, uh, from what we can tell, the early Christian church, when they referred to a Christian's death, they referred to it as falling asleep, you know. And I've been thinking, I think, I think we should pick that back up. <laughs> I think we should pick it back up. I think, you know, instead of so-and-so saying, oh, do you know so-and-so died, we should say, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so has fallen asleep. Because it was a euphemism for death, because for, the, for a Christian, death is not the end. It is entrance, in fact, into life. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
When our body sleeps, our soul goes to be with the Lord. And so, and one day, one day, body and soul shall be reunited in resurrection glory at the return of Jesus Christ. So there's one final thing we need to think about as we wrap up this account of Stephen here. And that is that we have a very important figure in the book of Acts who is introduced to us. It said there that uh, the, the people who were stoning Stephen laid their garments down at, a feet, at the feet of a young man named Saul. And, of course, you know who Saul is. He would one day become who is much more famously known as the Apostle Paul because Saul himself, even though right now he is approving of Stephen's execution, Saul himself would one day have his own personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, and he would never be the same. And you know what is remarkable, if you think about it, is this, right? Stephen prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And you know what? God answered Stephen's prayer. If, he, if in no one else's life, God answered Stephen's prayer in Paul's life. Because Paul became converted, and his sin, even the murder of Stephen, would not be held against Paul because it was covered by the blood of Christ on the cross. And I can't help but think that Saul, I just can't help but think that Saul, when he became converted, I can't, I can't help but think that he would just, he, he, he remembered Stephen's face. And I just can't help but think that it was Stephen's bold witness and bold sacrifice, even on that day, that just stuck something in the back of Paul's mind. That would one day lead to his trust in Jesus Christ. So what's the final point there? It is this. Never underestimate the power of a spirit-filled witness. Never underestimate the power of a spirit-filled witness. You never know, right? If you would have asked those early Christians... Who's the last person you would have thought you would think to get saved? They would have said, Saul. And God saved them. So never underestimate the power of a spirit-filled witness. So number one, spirit-filled witness. Number two, a suffering witness. A suffering witness, right? It says there that that day a great persecution arose, uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, among the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered except the apostles. In verse 3, it says, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So what was the result of Stephen's martyrdom? The result was a wave of persecution within the early church. So, and so it says there that Saul was ravaging the church. So this is a very strong word. It's a word that's used in the Greek Old Testament, all right, to describe wild beasts tearing at raw flesh, okay? He was literally doing everything he could to to tear the Jerusalem church apart. He was entering uh, house after house. So it means, that, it means that he was actively searching out house churches to arrest Christians for the purpose of uh, imprisonment, beatings, and, um, and, uh, and, and killings, uh, executions. All right, man and woman, it didn't matter. Uh, he viewed Christianity, Paul viewed Christianity as a dangerous, heretical sect that had to be extinguished at all costs. But the result of this persecution, it says, that that all were scattered, and this is the key, uh, as they were scattered, they proclaimed the gospel. As they were scattered, they proclaimed the gospel. So the lesson from this account, as we've seen consistently throughout the book of Acts, is that the Christian witness is offering, is often a suffering witness. The Christian witness is often a suffering 
witness, right? As our sister stated earlier, you can bear witness to Jesus on the mountains, but there is something special and powerful about a witness to Jesus in the valley. All right? Uh, It's easy to worship Jesus when everything is good, but there's a special witness that is born when we praise Jesus in our suffering. And in this case, they're suffering explicitly for the name of Christ. And Jesus told them, by the way, that this would happen in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. It says that it said, Jesus told them, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and, and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of money will grow cold, but the one... The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And, the gospel, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So in other words, tribulation and persecution and the proclamation of the gospel always go hand in hand. All right? And it also means that the real battle today going on in the world isn't political, it's spiritual. It's a battle of beliefs. It's a battle of souls. All right, Jesus told his disciples that they would be hated by all nations for his name's sake. All right, so I just think that means as Christians, we should just have it settled in our heart uh, that there will be times and seasons in life where it will be impossible to be a Christian and have everyone like you. And so this is hard because who doesn't want everyone to like them? And if we're honest, the greatest pressure in the world most of the time in our lives is probably peer pressure. As I say before, about 99 out of 100 things we do, we do because, of, because we're worried about what other people are going to think about it. But we, have to, but we as Christians have to come with the 2,000-year-old fact that there are seasons in life and in history and in nations and in cultures that come in which it will be impossible to be a Christian and have everyone like you. The Jewish authorities, because, because when we speak faithfully the truth of Christ, it's going to, not everyone's going to like it. The Jewish authorities understood exactly what Stephen was saying. Stephen didn't say anything wrong. He, they, he told nothing but the truth in the power and fullness, the Bible says, of the Holy Spirit, and they killed him for it. They hated what? They didn't hate Stephen per se, although I guess they kind of did. What they really hated, though, was the thought that Jesus might actually be who he claimed to be. Because, brothers and sisters, if Jesus really is, in fact, standing at the right hand of God, the only appropriate response to him is repentance and faith, love and obedience. Those are the only options to him who stands at the right hand of God. And so it's not, it's not new. And to notice what it isn't, though, it's not a call to take up arms, right? The Christian warfare, spiritual warfare, isn't isn't done with gunpowder and bullets. It's done, actually, through suffering. It's through suffering for the name. The way we fight our spiritual battles is to speak the truth in love and, and have a willingness to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. That's how we advance the kingdom. Why? Because the blood of martyrs is seed. That's why, that's, why, that's why we give right honor to our missionaries, right? Because what? Because those whom God calls to, to foreign 
international mission work, what are they doing? They're leaving safety. They're leaving comfort. They're leaving ease. They're leaving family. Humanly speaking, practically speaking, it makes no sense to be a missionary. Eternally speaking, it makes a ton of sense to be a missionary. This is why... So why does anyone become a missionary? Because of this. Because Jesus is worthy of temporal suffering to share his eternal glory. If, you, if, we only pray, if we only do easy things for Jesus, what does that tell the world how we feel about Jesus? But if we're willing to give up everything for Jesus, that shows the world how valuable he is. And that's what we do with a suffering witness. So a spirit-filled witness, a suffering witness, and then finally number three, a spreading witness, a spreading witness. So as they were scattered here, we see another individual, another one of the seven, in addition to Stephen, all right, was scattered abroad, and this particular individual was named Philip. And in, in, after he fled from, uh, because of the rise of persecution in Jerusalem, he goes, he goes uh, down to a city in Samaria, and notice there that it says... Uh, down to a city in Samaria, even though Samaria is north of Jerusalem, it says down because they view things in terms of elevations. Jerusalem's a high elevation, so he would have to go down the, the mountainside to go to the cities of Samaria. So he went down into Samaria and proclaimed the Christ, all right, and it says they all paid attention to him, and many came to know Jesus when they saw the miracles that he was doing, and there was much joy in that city. So the result of the persecution is that the word of God spread. So so kind of unintentionally, right, the Jewish authorities actually, their murder and persecution of Stephen in trying to stamp out Christianity actually had the opposite effect. Why is that? Because, guys, you can't fight God and win. You just can't, right? You can't pick a fight with God and win, right? The more you try to, to quench the gospel, the more it's going to spread. So Philip proclaims the gospel in Samaria, and you remember there, that Samaritans and Jews weren't exactly uh, BFFs, uh, uh, B- B- Biffles, best friends for life, all right? They just weren't, all right? You remember there uh, that the, the Samaritans were the vestiges of the old northern kingdom of Israel, right, which was uh, de- uh, obliterated by the kingdom of Assyria, and they were exiled out of the land in 722 B.C., and the Assyrians then resettled foreigners back into the Israel, uh, and, then, and so you had these foreigners who mixed with the remaining, you know, idolatrous Jews, and they became the Samaritans. And they, they had a kind of like a pseudo-Jewish religion there. They, they believed in the first five books of the Bible alone, and they had, they had a conception of the Messiah uh, uh, called the Tahid. But it's important to note that Luke, who is writing Acts, uh, also wrote, of course, the book of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke, interestingly, is the only gospel that speaks of Jesus having a ministry, or apart from the Gospel of John. Uh, but the Gospel of Luke is the only, uh, of Matthew, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that speaks of Jesus having a ministry among the Samaritans. And in fact, um, the Gospel of Luke alone records the parable, one of the most famous parables of the Good Samaritan, which actually speaks of a Samaritan in a positive light. And so Luke, even in his gospel, was already pointing to the fact that Jesus' ministry would ultimately extend to come to include 
Samaritans, and not just Samaritans, but the whole world. And by the way, in the book of Acts, Jesus already said that this was going to happen, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it's taken a little while to get there, but now that there's persecution in Jerusalem and the gospel is spread in Jerusalem, now is the time for the gospel to spread to, Samar- to, to the Samaritans. So despite persecution, and even because of persecution, the gospel witness is the spreading witness. Why? Because, and it says there that when that happened, when that happened through Philip, there was much joy in that city. And so with this comment, we're going to wrap it up this morning, and that is this. It's it's that as people find hope in Christ, healing from life's affliction and meaning and purpose, they find joy. Where people find Jesus, they find joy. And that's what we need to be about as when Philip goes and proclaims the gospel, no, not everyone will receive it, but you know what? Some people will. And when they do, they find joy because that's what Jesus comes to bring. Life change, transformation, joy that can't be, that can't be touched by human circumstances. That's what joy brings. And so this all comes through what? Through our witness, a spirit-filled witness, a suffering witness, and a spreading witness. And so church, let's be witnesses for him. Let's pray together. King Jesus, Lord, we're, we're humbled to think about your servants, uh, Stephen and Philip, this morning, and to think about their witness, Lord. And their witness brought joy to these Samaritans, God, that, that didn't have it before. And Lord, I think most of us in this room can think about that day or that time or that season in life where somebody in some form, shape, or fashion, Lord, somebody brought the gospel to us. And we found joy. And Lord, there's nothing like it. And God, maybe, maybe there's somebody in this room, God, and what they need from you this morning is joy. And so I pray this morning that you would grant them to be able to see with eyes of faith that you are, in fact, the one standing at the right hand of God. That you did, in fact, sacrifice yourself on the cross that we might be forgiven of our sins, that we might escape the condemnation for our sins, that we might be forgiven and adopted into the family of God. What greater family could we possibly be part of? And in this family is joy. And so, Lord, if there's someone like that today, God, I pray that they would turn from their sins and trust in you and find joy and joy everlasting. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.